Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week, we discuss Labour's anti-Semitism crisis. And we talk about deselecting Kate Hoey and Frank Field. Plus, you ask us, should there be a people's vote? Hello, we're joining you from the extremely, actually quite cool podcast, Bunker, to talk about, well, what are we going to talk about? Later on this summer, uh, Stephen and I are going to do some special episodes where we talk about everything that's not Brexit. I thought we might call it No Brexit, Please, We're British. Or, you know, No Brexit, Please, I'm Helen, and I'm really worried about Brexit, but I also can't do anything about it, and it's really getting me down. So if you have policy areas that you'd like us to talk about, do write in or tweet in. But until then, I think we've probably got to talk about the story of the week, Stephen, which is Labour's anti-Semitism row part. 94, unfortunately. Can you recap me on what's happened this in the last 24 hours? So in the last 24 hours, well, so going slightly further, I'm going to go back to Saturday night. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go back to 59 BC. Yeah, right, so, okay, so really the, the row begins in 1917. Ian Austin has had disciplinary measures brought against him for a confrontation he had with Ian Lavery, Ian right? La- Lavery. So that is Ian Austin, anti-Corbyn MP, Ian Lavery, pro-Corbyn MP. And party chair. In which, now, according to the account published by Kevin Maguire in the pages of your shiny super sore away new statesman, he described him as a man who enjoys the act of self-love <laughs> with an adverb <laughs> describing the act of love to a third party. No, a second party. A second party, yeah. <laughs> oh, um, that's kind of, yeah. And it's like, I like your New York Times as, reporting of this. And as someone of... An uh, epithet applied to a female dog. Illegitimate parentage. Yeah. Right? Ian Austin disputes this. Peter Kyle has said he was there. And then Ian Austin did not use those phrases, but he was volubly angry with Ian Lavery. So that kind of started, slash was the, the kind of latest development in the ongoing row then. A audio recording of Pete Willsman, one of the nine representatives on the NEC elected by ordinary members in which he claims that the allegations of anti-Semitism have been spread by Trump fanatics within the Jewish community and which he shouted at the other members of the NEC to raise their hand if they had ever seen any anti-Semitism in the party. He claimed he hadn't. Which one of the things I enjoyed about that was the fact that clearly at least two people do then raise their hands, which is probably not the rhetorical flourish that he was hoping for. Well, yeah, I mean, I think so. There are a couple of specific things and I think it's important then, you know, if you're coming that this is someone who's at all normal, you won't immediately get about this row, which is then Peter Wilsman sits on disputes committee, which I mean, the clue is in the title, yeah. uh, which, among other things, they're the ones who vote on whether or not a complaint has enough merit in it to go to the NCC. I'm sorry, I'm having acronym failure. I can't remember what this, the very... What the National Complaints Committee? No, it's National Constitutional Committee or right, some kind okay. of thing, because... 
if, if, if something can be named by, be given a clear name in the Labour Party, people are against it. That's actually clause six. <laughs> right. Whatever you, yeah, like at any point, do not have a transparent rule book. If there is one member in the Labour Party who, unless they are, to put it bluntly, themselves an anti-Semite, could not claim to have never seen any anti-Semitism or indeed any racism or sexual anti-Semitism. It is the people on disputes committee. Oh, you know, uh, just get a Google alert, Pete. That's all I think about. I'm, I was just writing a piece about this today and there's just been two Labour councillors suspended in the last 48 hours, one of whom said that he thinks that they're raising, uh, just asking questions about whether or not there is a Mossad in uh, directed plan to stop Labour becoming the next government because they would recognise the state of Palestine. And just, just um, that might, that's one of many possible explanations for the current state of the polls. And another person who on their Facebook page has been posted, well, there are, there are postings on their Facebook page, who can say how they got there, about literally blood drinking Jews and how Jews should be executed. Yeah, so I they're mean, very keen to say that they are an anti-Zionist, not an anti-Semite. I should put that in for legal reasons. So this tape has emerged of him, and there is really no other word for it than ranting. This is Pete Wilsman. Yeah, so I mean, this creates a couple of headaches for the Labour left. The first is that NEC ballots have already dropped in all, basically, not just in Labour Party internal elections, but in basically any election, whether it's the Labour Party, the Conservative Party, the nationwide AGM board. People vote in two big blobs. Blob one is when the ballots immediately drop. Like literally, when you say ballots, I mean, it comes, they're doing yeah. postal stuff yeah, that they come through, through the, the They come through the door with a sort of note being like, please, please, could you save the party some money by voting online? There's basically a huge lump of voting at the start, and then there's a huge lump of voting right at the end when people panic and they go, oh God, I haven't voted for the Labour leadership, the nationwide AGM, the Warhammer Fanciers Society president. I do not doubt for a moment that one of the reasons why NEC meetings were recorded is because there is an NEC election going on at the moment. There is the expectation that although the nine official Jeremy Corbyn candidates will be elected, a tenth candidate who have voted for Jeremy Corbyn both times, Anne Black, which is more identified with uh, the centre of the party, with Open Labour and the soft left, may be able to sneak on, right? So basically, everyone quite likes Anne Black, right? This is the thing: is that she's got a, a pretty broad support base generally among lots of different factions. You all think she's relatively fair, yeah. But her big electoral problem in this contest, and you can see it if you just Google her Twitter handle at Anne Black for NEC, you can see it playing out. Then she is doing a very good job of getting a lot of people's. So it's a first-past-the-post election of getting a lot of people to vote for her plus eight candidates of one of the other slates. Her problem is she is not doing a good job of specifically nobbling any one of the nine candidates. So that's thing. She not only needs to get lots of votes from everywhere, she needs there to be a weaker member of the nine. But now, you say the JC9, the, the, this Jeremy Corbyn said, it's a slate that's being run by Momentum and the Campaign for Labour Party Democracy, right? Yeah. And, which is, you explain this better than I have in your blog, the original kind of Benite Party democracy reform yeah, group so it was founded, more about empowering members. Founded in 1973 by Vladimir Dera. There's a very, both very interesting and very moving obituary of, of Dera on the Left Futures website written by John Landsman, which gives you a very good flavour of who he was, his importance to that bit of the Labour Party's movement. Now, the, the thing is, is although Momentum and the CPLD have an agreement to fight elections together, I mean, to be blunt, that would be a bit like Manchester City and Leighton Orient having an agreement to fight for the Premier League title together. Right, because you put um, this in your blog and I thought this was really interesting. You're saying that Momentum's, you know, obviously a huge membership organisation. It's got a really big presence on both Twitter and Facebook. 
And the campaign for Labour democracy is kind of not, I wouldn't say a rump, but it's very much just a parliamentary thing, really, with a little bit of social, about, what, 5,000 of odd well, so followers? It's not, on? it's not really a part. It exists largely in the grassroots. Right. It's very much kind of, if, if you think of it as there being a kind of ACBC after, before and after Corbyn in, in the life of, of the Labour Party grassroots, it is very much a BC organisation. It's still basically the same size it was before Corbyn's membership. It doesn't have a social media uh, footprint in the way that Momentum does. It doesn't have a financial resources in the way Momentum does. But it is the organisation in which a, Pete Wilmsman is, is head. Is the, the head. Because sure. right? yeah. I think right, the other important thing to under, understand here is that Pete Wilsman going on a rant that many members of the NEC, including people of his own faction, find deeply unpleasant to sit through, is not new. Understandably, there is a lot of anger that NEC reports from Anne Black, from Rhea Wolfson, from Richard Corbett do not mention the content of this rant. But that's because it's sort of priced in. It's like item five and then he had his rant. So yeah, after every NEC meeting, I will ring round the NEC and effectively go, look, you know, how do you think it went? And basically every time someone will say in the same way they might, when they basically finish saying, well, here's the things I think are important and we have the like, oh, how are you? What are your plans? You know, how's how's the partner? All of that kind of chit chat. Um, they'll say, oh, Willsman went on one of his rants. I think it, that actually much better sums up why Labour is in the position it is in than the people who are ideologically committed to anti-Semitism, right? Because ultimately, for a large group of people on the organised left of the Labour Party, Pete Wilsman's rants are just a, they're the cost of doing business. You've, you've got a deal between Momentum and the, and the Campaign for Labour Party Democracy, and so you just accept that. He comes with that. that he, comes, he comes with the package. And of course, we see this with the grimly, depressingly bad response to Me Too at Westminster, where effectively every faction has circled the wagon of, yeah. of whoever. Or I think, as you mentioned, Saeed Avasi repeatedly calling out Islamophobia in the Tory party and getting absolutely yeah, no pickup for it at all. And basically, every MP just being like, <clears throat> I think I'm washing my hair. Yeah. And so. Which is a really good argument for diversity, right? When we have this thing about, you know, actually, because there's no doubt that if there wasn't someone like Saeed Avasi doing that, and the issue of Islamophobia in the Tory party would get far less attention. And ditto, Margaret Hodgeny and Austin are both Jewish members of Labour, right? There is. I mean, this is something you've talked to about. It turns out that actually people outside the group cannot be relied upon. Like, it is is asking too much of marginalised groups to expect them to rely on the munificence of other people, recognising that they have real real grievances. Yeah, I mean, it, it is why actually, yeah, all of this stuff people talk about, like tokenism, you know, how it has no practical effect. Like, why has the House of Commons as a cross, not just within the Labour Party, but as a cross party to become better at, recognising specific women-related health issues and guaranteeing reproductive rights. Answer, there are many more female MPs than there have been before. And yeah, it is, again, in microcosm, uh, an argument for that. Now, of course, the other big question that all of this sort of does raise is, given that at the end of all of this, Pete Wilsman will almost certainly be re-elected to the NEC, not because Labour Party members know who Pete Wilsman is and have any particular affection for him, but because he has the word Jeremy Corbyn next to his name, effectively. Given that we have this situation where Labour MPs, for understandable reasons, are very angry with their... Not all Labour... Some are very angry with their leader, but A, cannot change their leader, and B, have no appetite for any of the compromises I think they would have to make in order to regain some internal relevance. It does increasingly feel like their interests are served by 
some form of formal split, which is something that about 15 to 17 Labour MPs are seriously talking about. It's something a lot of Labour MPs believe is probably inevitable unless the IRA row is in some way resolved. I cannot, I just can't envisage a situation in which at this point, the Labour leadership would decide to uh, simply vote for the full definition. That's the thing I think is most interesting about it. I mean, take aside the moral issue of it, but about what it says about how you can expect that the leadership to behave in situations like this, right? That's, I think, what I would find more worrying were I a Labour MP, is that if, you know, that this is a leadership with a with very fixed views on stuff, which we knew from the start, and it's what a lot of people liked about Jeremy Corbyn, was that he was notoriously, you know, someone who's committed to the same views. He wasn't, you know, a turncoat, or he doesn't want just someone who just picked things up for electoral gain. The downside of that, it turns out, is that he has is incredibly inflexible when he's set his mind to something. Um, he won't change it. And I think it's very interesting that John McDonnell, the Shadow Chancellor, and Becca Long-Bailey, his ally, have both said, you know, drop these proceedings against Margaret Hodge. You know, this is really, is this the hill you want to die on? We've got all these, you know, stacked up cases that have taken months to process. And yet within 24 hours, we've managed to start proceedings against Margaret Hodge for raising, you know, somebody who had family members who died in the Holocaust, raising this issue that's clearly deeply personal to her. And then getting people, you know, I was arguing with somebody who said, well, yeah, what, what's, you know, why wasn't Margaret Hodge focusing on, you know, Tommy Robinson and, and the rise of street racism? And I was like, are we talking about the same Margaret Hodge? Do we remember the Barking campaign, the, the BMP? And that's what I find very alarming about all of this row is it all, like everything at the moment in the Labour Party just gets sucked into a partisan pro-anti-Corbyn and you just, you you line up everybody what they think about it based on, on what, you know, whether or not you're fundamentally in favour of him or not, rather than being able to get to a position where you can say, I like Jeremy Corbyn, I voted for him both times, but he's got this very badly wrong. Well, I think that, yeah. Which I'm not hearing a lot of. I know, I think there are a lot of, um, a lot of people who voted for Jeremy Corbyn both times who are, uh, yeah, and you can see them on on Twitter. I'm not talking about kind of people who are official outriders. I'm just talking about, you know, ordinary Labour members. But I think it's become very hard for them to say that, right? Because it's seen as being incredibly disloyal and traitorous because he's under so much attack from everybody in the evil MSM, blah, 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 that you mustn't say anything against him because you're ruining the chances of another Labour government. And because I think there are essentially three and a half schools of thought within the Labour Party on this, right? There's the leader himself and some, but not everyone in the leader's office who fundamentally regard the IRA row as a foreign policy issue. Mm-hmm. Um, they feel that the, the examples that they have opted not to include, they think preclude necessary criticism of the state of Israel. There are his critics on this issue, which obviously also include a large number of his critics on every issue, who regard it fundamentally as a domestic policy issue. And obviously that includes within it people who go, my only problem with the settlement system, the walls aren't a tasteful colour, and includes people who believe in the pre-67 borders. But they fundamentally view it as about what the Jewish community in this country wants and see it as a, a kind of ethical issue. And then there's the third group who are, I think, the tendency to watch because they are the A, the growing group, and B, the one which, if there is a solution to this that doesn't involve some kind of labour splintering off are the people who are effectively see it through, look, I do not care what is in this definition. I mean, it is supremely pointless because because the NEC is ultimately a constitutional court as well as the sovereign body. And obviously, if you look at the Home Affairs Select Committee, right there, there are bits of IRA that are not, that it is hard to work out how you would directly interpret as a from a legislative perspective 
But if something is fungible and you've got an NEC majority, then it doesn't matter. And if you don't have an NEC majority on your Jeremy Corbyn, you would have other problems. Well, this um, is the thing I think is, yeah, yeah, like, is really interesting about it, is that, I, and I find it really hard to explain this whole issue to people who haven't been following it in you know, minute and horrifying detail from day one, for the same reason that something like the Judas Seder is really hard to explain to people from the outside, that you kind of go, well, yes, it was nice that he attended a Passover thing, but this is why it was, this is why it was seen as a kind of uh, a kick in the teeth by the mainstream Jewish community. And it's not a community that I think lots of people have, because it's a relatively small community, that not people have a, feel that they have a great deal of insight into perhaps in, in, you know, in the country. Hence why we haven't seen this cutting through in, in polling. Yeah, I mean, one of one of the memes I am heartily sick of is people going, "Oh, if this were any, if, I'm sorry, if this was any other group, the Labour Party would be behaving in exactly the same way." Yeah, I like ultimately, like to kind of have my Zionist moment, right? This this fundamentally is the argument for why you need a a Jewish state because you cannot trust majorities to vote in the interest of minorities, actually, regardless of the size of that minority. So yeah, that is why it will it will not impact on the next election and will not impact on the polls. But that third group, which doesn't really care about any of that minutia in it, but they look at a Labour leadership, which for goodness sake, has no particularly bracing critique of how the police conduct themselves, will not even exert itself to legalise even mushrooms. You should uh, say uh, the psychedelic mushrooms, not like chanterelles. Yeah, I mean, chanterelles are pretty cool too. Um, <laughs> they should definitely be legalised. Um, had a free vote on Heathrow expansion. Quite literally, we are in the middle of a global heat wave, right? This is this is not a Labour leadership which is unwilling to throw things overboard yeah. to win power. And one of the the split within the within the kind of shadow cabinet Corbynites is there are lots of people who basically look at this and go, but why? I mean, Labour why is this have, your hill that Labour you die have on? a great populist campaign to win over UKIP considerers on nationalisation and really taking back control this summer. Then, of course, no one is going to notice or write about as long as the Labour Party is having this fight. And that that group is very well represented in the Labour grassroots. Uh, privately, that is a position of a lot of people we would think of as Corbynites within the shadow cabinet. And I mean, if if there is a a way that the row can end without a collision, it will basically be because a combination of, of, of group three basically goes, I'm sorry, why are we doing this? What is the value of it? But if even John McDonnell can't persuade Jeremy Corbyn to change course, then... I don't know. I, I do think um one of the things that people have... like The problem with when the Conservatives are in office is we always start to cover the Labour Party as if it has the same constitutional culture and structure as the Conservatives, mm. where even a very politically weak Conservative leader like Theresa May still has a huge amount of internal constitutional power by dint of her leadership of the party and the fact that it is very easy for the Conservative leader to create a majority on the uh, ruling board of the Tory party. Whereas, actually, Jeremy Corbyn only controls one vote on the ruling NEC, his. No one else is bound to him. Or I mean, one of the slight myths of this whole, like, JC9, we've always been loyal. Um, actually, I looked through that list of nine people, and a lot of them have not always voted with Jeremy Corbyn on the NEC. So this is, this is what I mean about how that third tendency could... I mean, this thing's right. Rebecca Long-Bailey is one of his people on the NEC, right? The, the leader gets to appoint two people as, as further votes for him. Well, well, she doesn't need to vote for it next time, right? So... I think if there is a resolution, it will essentially be that the decision kind of gets taken out of Jeremy Corbyn's hands. 
Which in some ways would be the best thing because it would mean that he didn't have to compromise his principles, but it also meant that they got to put this behind. Well, I don't think they will ever put this behind them exactly. I think we should come back to that. Maybe let's start with a future pod about the kind of like how radical is Labour's current stance? Because it's something Phil Collins in the Times wrote a really interesting piece last week saying, you know, this is uh, supposedly an extremely radical proposition, but, you know, they're not talking at all about robots and what they might do to the job market. They're not talking at all about... Land, you know, a land sweeping land tax. Something the new statesman's been campaigning on for years is land reform, and actually more taxes on capital rather than income, because of that being the way that wealth is kind of hoarded now. So I think there's a there's a kind of good audit to be done. But you know what? Let's go and have an ice cream, Stephen. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. And now for a section we like to call You Ask Us. I was really hoping you were going to sing that in Chili Pepper style. How would I even get that to scan? I mean, also, that would go on for ages, right? Wouldn't it? You, know, like... <laughs> yeah, you have to do one of those Chili Peppers raps that just, yeah, anyway, let's not. What have people asked us? So the question we have this week is Will and should a people's vote, so a vote on the terms of the deal? I don't know who I think is listening to this podcast to. He's sitting going, a people's vote? What's that by gum? Um, but anyway, a people's vote, a vote on the terms of the deal that Theresa May eventually strikes with the EU. Yes, I'm aware that it is slightly begging the question to assume <laughs> that, uh, that, uh, that there will be a Britain. A, a, a Britain or indeed a deal to vote on. But yeah. but yeah, let's just roll with that for a second. Can or can and should it happen my question has always been about the how the hell do you do the timing for it and um, because you presume that Theresa may will come back with her deal in october is that the plan the current plan we're supposed to be leaving in march <laughs> and then for a two-year transition period well slightly less than two years isn't it and at some point you're meant to squeeze in not only a commons vote that they're already talking about the fact they've only got four days to debate it or something like that which they're saying is enough but you're supposed to squeeze in a referendum too so that's on logistical grounds. I just don't understand it. And then I think the next thing to do is, I mean, I think we talked about this before about multi-part refer- like what what are the questions on that referendum? What would you want? Do you want Theresa May's deal? Do you want to leave without a deal, or do you want to stay in the EU? Once again, it's asking people lots of things that actually one you know staying in the EU at that point is no one can promise them that that will happen if they vote for it, right? I mean, you could say yes, of course, the EU would like less bother and put and. Any decent campaign at all is going to be able to exploit the uncertainty of that. I mean, I know I harp on all the time about the Irish referendum, but Leo Varadkar did publish a white paper that said, here is the abortion legislation I will bring forward so you know exactly what you're voting for. So what you're doing essentially is asking people once again to vote for an option that is not guaranteed to happen. Yeah, so I mean, I I think the, the, the problem as well as the lack of time is because like one of the reasons why it looks like we're heading for quite a bad Brexit outcome is Parliament cannot agree on Brexit. So the idea that you have a second vote as a way out, well, doesn't that involve part... Like, the second you start to ask, what would the question be? What would the franchise... Would, would under-16s be able to vote this time? What about EU citizens who've applied for settled status or have been here for, you know, a decade? Or you know, there, are, there are so many difficult questions and amendments and 
and then it would ping back and forth between the Commons and the Lords. I basically cannot work out how Parliament would would get to a point where it would happen. So that to me is the can it happen? No, I, I just don't buy it. Should it happen? I mean, bluntly, my feeling is the one thing that um, pro Europeans have got going for us at the moment is that the last referendum was incredibly close. Now, it is, of course, possible that a second referendum campaign for, yes, with slightly more favourable demographics, but one in which it would not have the full might of the state, the treasury, the second most popular conservative politician in the country, the bulk of the Labour Party, all of the trade unions, every living prime minister, etc., etc., behind it, yeah, it's possible that a campaign without those advantages and instead run by a coalition of condescending QCs, people who are incredibly rude on Twitter and actors would do better. It's possible. It doesn't, <laughs> however, feel like People likely. have got FBP in their Twitter name. Uh, Please yeah. send your abuse to at Stephen. But I, 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 no, the I, worst people, can I say the worst people are, and actually these include some of my extremely dear friends, I really shouldn't say this, people who go like, actually it was only voted for by 37% of people. I think they might be the worst people. I think that, yeah, I know. I think that it was advi- advisory. It's just like literally the concept of a referendum in a parliamentary system is, is by definition only ever advisory. And also it just doesn't, it doesn't get you anywhere. Like who does, who is persuaded when you go, actually your vote last time was advisory but also yeah, i think fundamentally it comes down to the fact that i thought the referendum last time i was agnostic on the concept of referendum now i think it's just a really bad idea because what you end up with doing is binding a government's hands to some nebulous thing that they don't really want to do. a leader you know of a party a prime minister might not want or carry out there's no way to hold anybody accountable i think the accountability issue is so hard because I mean, you know dominic cummings is there in his bunker he won't he won't come out sorry i was making me think of but he won't you know like you can't we can't hold any anybody who campaigned for it accountable in the way you would do if it was a government and a manifesto yeah i mean i think there is like the crucial difference that remain is a concrete destination that we all understand right and it exists in the real world and so, so i would be all for another referendum if i believed remain was in a trajectory to win it but i don't that's I'd, very honest of you i, I i'm no i mean that's, that's the fundamental thing like don't hold referenda on essential planks of your macroeconomic strategy unless you are a hundred percent certain that you are going to win, right? I mean, it's just like you know, don't. I mean, what what next? Like, are we going to have one about what we think the t- top rate of tax should be, or you know, like what? what oh my god! What can you imagine how bad that would be? Or outflow should be. I mean, this thing. It's just a. We're not like, Switzerland people. But the thing is, re- referenda should be restricted to constitutional questions, and the government should only hold them when it agrees with the change proposition. Neither of those conditions applied, so it was a stupid thing to do. But I really do not see the value in holding a referendum, which I basically think that pro-Europeans would definitely lose, not least because the thing people will say is last time Leave benefited because of how ambiguous it was. Well, in the event that there is a deal, the deal will be ambiguous because the only way then a deal will pass Parliament, because for understandable reasons, Labour, the Liberal Democrats, the SNP, Plaid Cymru and Caroline Lucas are not going to go, oh, we're going to bail the Conservatives out, but we're also going to dip our fingers in the blood of this appalling deal. Well, not so, least because Kate Hoey and Frank Field are now both facing the threat of deselection. Well, yeah, this, why, why would, why, why is it voting in with the government? anyone's interest to do it other than the Conservative Party? How do you, well, we got a minute, Can, how do you feel about the Kate Hoey, Frank Field deselection rise? Because I, I, I don't know how I feel. I'm instinctively against the idea of deselection because MPs have voted in ways that you disagree with. But I do also see the argument that there is a kind of qualitative difference to to, like someone like Kate Hoey has basically been against 
virtually like all of Labour's sort of social, you know, to, you know, kind of those flagship issues like fox hunting and stuff for a lot of years. Yeah, but Frank now. Field is quite bad on abortion, right? I mean, so true, uh, but so, very good on welfare. Well, I so a good, very good at account at holding people accountable on welfare. So, I think he's done good work there. Because I keep having to explain how the trigger balance system works. Every time I do it, I become more and more into an easier way of removing MPs because. It's like it is obviously uh, designed to prevent incumbents changing. And again, I know people always write in when I talk about the bit of North London in which I live. But fundamentally, it is a bit of a problem, however you slice it, that the last meaningful vote on who Hackney North's MP was, was in 1980-something. Because the reality is, is right, Diane is always going to win because of the demographics. And you do have to have some uh, checks and balances. And I think it is, yeah, so I think... An easier selection process is is fine. Um, I actually kind of think, and then it is a choice for for local party uh, members. I, I do personally, as an outsider, regard uh, Labour's rule selection process for MPs as, as inadequate and, and too high. Now, I have a problematic opinionary Kate Hoey, which is that I actually uh, deeply respect her on Brexit. Right? She believes it to be, but she rightly believes it to be the most important issue facing the country. Yep. She regards Brexit as not as a risk, yeah, as the risk of derailing Brexit as not being worth as being one that she is not willing to take, and she doesn't give a flying one that her constituency disagrees with her on it. Now, bluntly, if there were more Labour MPs who had been willing to say, well, I'm sorry, but actually you don't have a problem in your 98% white British constituency with people coming from Central and Eastern Europe, yeah. then we would not be in this mess to begin with. Do I think it's legitimate for Vauxhall Labour MPs to want someone who represents their values seeing as ultimately like although i also think right the, the big difference I mean, do you think voxel labor members do you think it's legitimate for them to want someone who represents their values yeah of course it is like ultimately like all of these mps right and kate hoey works voxel incredibly hard right there you will get an, an unusually high number of ordinary people in voxel go oh, i like kate hoey i i know her I've, she does work it very hard but ultimately right the reason why all of this stuff about personal votes and mandates is nonsense is Literally every single MP in that building was elected because of the rosette next to their side. Now, maybe their majority, you know, if they have a majority of 2,000, 3,000, maybe their personal vote got them over the, the line. But it is a combination of who the representative is and who their party is. And it is therefore, of course, completely constitutionally and politically appropriate for members of that party whose endorsement and imprimatur is so vital to getting that person elected to be able to withdraw it if they feel that their interests are are not being met, right? That is why if you don't like it, form another political party. But, but yeah. That's your answer to everything these days, Stephen. Yeah, seriously, our, our sink is broken. And I'm just like, well, look, we just need to form a political party. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-presenter, Stephen Bush. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Why not sign up to the New Statesman as a concept? Why not subscribe online? You won't be able to get Morning Call. That's currently having a little rest in a feather-lined duvet for the summer, but you'll be able to get Stephen's week ahead every Sunday. You can go to subscribe.newstatesman.com.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.